Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Our Undoing Radio. Uh, I am with our, our special guest closing us off this season, Dr. Although he's retired, so I would argue he needs to be called Mr. at this point, but Dr. Tyler Cokejohn. Dr. Cokejohn, welcome. Thank you. Good to uh, be here. Is it? We've had some yes. o- audio issues, folks. <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, crap. But we're here now, and that's what's important. Um, so there are two topics that you wanted to talk about, and they're kind of interrelated in a way. Um, which would you like to tackle first going to mars or nazi dating services oh let's go to mars and then then we can pick up some nazi dates all right so let's go to mars you uh recently wrote a blog post which i would love to have up on my screen right now but i don't trust my screen with anything (laughs) so why don't you tell us all about it buddy what is it you really want to talk about well this this was a book that I happened to find out about just through the sheerest of happenstance on Twitter. I saw some people talking about it and I thought, oh, I've got to look at this. It's um, the next 500 years, engineering life to reach new worlds by Dr. Christopher Mason. And it is um, one of the rare times that I've read a book and said, oh, Jeremy has to know about this. As I got into it, it, it became apparent there were a lot of things that were probably uh, not only going to be of interest to you, but might uh, make you uh, have a few comments, to uh, put it mildly. So that's uh, how it started, and I, I uh, went through it. Uh, Dr. Mason is a professor at Wild Cornell uh, School of Medicine in New York City, and he is a NASA scientist, very accomplished NASA scientist. There's a long publication record, and he's worked with some of the best people uh, and done a really, really interesting scientific investigation, uh, and in particular, uh, with spaceflight. So he kind of uh, begins, he starts out with um, descriptions of what the astronaut Scott Kelly went through. His twin brother is Mark Kelly, presently a senator from Arizona. And uh, they did the infamous twin study where Scott basically spent a year on the International Space Station and they they could compare the two to see what happened. So anyway, uh, Scott Kelly came back and, oh my God, he he suffered quite a few changes from outer space. Um, I won't go into all the the details, but it wasn't pleasant. And uh, he's a tough guy and he was able to to come back. it really confirmed that humans are not built for spaceflight. And that's kind of uh, the point of departure that uh, Christopher Mason uses, that we now have the capability to engineer ourselves, to engineer life, and uh, fix it, make it so that we can do better in outer space. Long story short, that's what he's proposing, is we begin a process of engineering ourselves to go to outer space, to Mars, uh, and beyond, uh, because we have to. There's this, I guess, expiration date on planet Earth, and we got to get off this place if we're going to survive as a species. And so this is the first steps towards that. So now, he's, uh, how does he justify that we need to get off Earth because there's an expiration date outside of the one that we uh, are creating? 
Oh, that doesn't come up, Jeremy. Oh, weird. Yeah. How about that? I thought you might, I thought you might have a few questions. Because, uh, you know, the sun has an expiration date, too. So should we be plotting for that? You already, you have basically outlined his, uh, his idea. Is that, <laughs> yes, in the end, going to Mars, going to Titan, or wherever we try to go, is not going to be sufficient because our sun will wear out. Yeah, and then what? What do we do with that? So it's, um, I, I don't know, I went back and, and the themes that kind of are intercalated in there, uh, not always overtly, the same themes that I remember as a kid reading hard science fiction. Well, let's switch the topic up a little bit here and just go with this for a minute. What do you think about the idea of us trying to live forever, given that all of nature is not about living forever. I mean, isn't it natural to die? And when we do try to fiddle with ourselves or even just um, the, the things that we're doing now for longevity, do we not see that other parts of us uh, go bad? <laughs> you know, like yeah. Alzheimer's is your specialty or was your specialty. Is there not an argument that Alzheimer's is in fact you know, exists in us because we live longer? Is that not an argument? Uh, it's part of the problem that uh, it, it's one of those diseases that shows up with advanced age. Uh, so those are great that questions. Keep, that we can keep sort of plugging the dam here, you know, instead of, it just seems like not just an uphill battle, but really it's so against the nature that nature is always going to win in some way. And and we, we see this all the time in different avenues of our lives uh why would this be any different this is the biggest one this is immortality it is it actually is so uh, the way i i put it in the book is frankenstein meets the epic of gilgamesh and it is a, a, a search for immortality no question so Will if you work? find immortality through genetic shenanigans or i don't even know what cybertronics whatever it would be what is it that we're preserving uh, that's not the human. I, I think honestly, um, part of his idea is not necessarily personal immortality as much as maintaining the uh, life on Earth, the species that we've got this wonderful planet. And so it's our duty. And, and this is exactly how he's uh, put it in together. It is the duty of humankind. We're the only ones who can. Uh, can manage this, can do this, and that is to preserve life. And uh, when the sun dies, to make sure that it goes someplace else. Very interesting duty. <laughs> yes. Well, just because you can do something doesn't mean it's your duty. Uh, this, is, this is kind of an interesting, uh, I guess, philosophical divide. Uh, and, and that, as I would phrase it, would be... Uh, it's a rationalization. And I would say that a lot of people are going to question whether or not it is a duty, whether we have the wisdom. Now, remember, he's talking hundreds of years into the future. And so what he does is he kind of starts with what's possible today and how we might make ourselves better astronauts and then begins to build towards the, the far future where we uh, really uh, take this to the, the final stage. 
what that final stage will be, he is unclear about. And so perhaps it's going to be, uh, he even mentions mechanical. Don't know. Well, Don't know. You, you just said, um, do we have the wisdom? And I would, I would make the uh, case that a mind that is wise, that has actual wisdom, doesn't come up with this stuff. You know, yeah. so in other words, the again, this gets to the the whole thing of the adults in the room, quote unquote, are the people from the society that has won the most wars <laughs> and is still here, still standing and dominating other people with, um, I mean, with violence, with or at least the threat of. Right. Like that's what a country is, is the, the one who's got the most. Um, ability to knock you down. Well, um, yeah, unfortunately, internally, internally, a country like that is what makes up a country, right? Is the predominance of of force in terms of having police, and you know, in our case, FBI, CIA, military, like whoever's got the 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 might of of actual physical force is the cohesive, you know, winning structure of a country of a society. Uh. Okay. Now. Unfortunately, and so, but that, but that again is all like westernized stuff, and so that mind, the best of the best in that within that stew, uh, probably isn't even able to understand that they aren't wise, that they're even just a mind <laughs> in a field of minds, a mind field, if you will, and <laughs> some of them uh, are closer to truth. Some are closer to nature, you know, on and on. Some are maybe farther away, even. But, I mean, we don't ever even have that discussion first of, like, okay, what is the quality of the mind that's, that is telling us, and, and indeed telling him internally, um, this has to be the future. This has to be the way the world goes. Why do we never question that quality of mind first and then get into, like, what's the actual philosophical argument here? Oh, I, I know that. Okay. I know the answer. I, I think it's because we can. And from the standpoint of the guy that does it, what else could you want to do but more of what he does? And so this becomes the great rationalization. Uh, you know, we, a lot of times we, we think of science as this dispassionate search for truth. Uh, values are in there. Uh, not in this particular sort of tome and plan you know we're looking this is another rework of manifest destiny and uh, like i say the themes of hard science fiction that a lot of us consumed as kids uh technology is savior in a way hope for eternal life although he's not really explicitly saying that's going to be an individual game but yeah i mean you know to the guy with the hammer sort of story uh, and so they they want to go the, the i guess the the really strange thing for me is that you rarely see such a frank outlining of uh, somebody's view uh, from a major... This guy's a really, really top drawer scientist. And he's putting out there uh, why we have to, why it's our duty, uh, why we will be the guardians of life, because nobody else can. So it's hard to escape that, that kind of uh, a duty. And well, that's exactly how he phrases it. One, we haven't been guardians of life yet, um, so we have no experience in that. Two, as far as guardians go, 
life itself seems to pretty, be a pretty good guardian of life. I mean, this, this idea that we're on a pedestal, like I think, you know, in our enduring doing terms, I guess I would put this like, this is a way that we talk to ourselves to say, you know, that we're not our full whole expression of us, but it gets screwed up. And we think that like what that means is um, we have to be on top. We have to be caretakers. We have this responsibility and duty um, in a hierarchical sense, as opposed to beyond that hierarchy. <laughs> Like that's a, that's a man-made hierarchy. Um, yeah. And and again, I go back to, I mean, if you just want to be snarky about it, you just say, well, we haven't, we haven't done that yet. Like nothing about us has been stewards of earth. Why would we be stewards of anywhere else? Let alone the whole universe. Because I, I didn't tell you that his scope is ultimately the entire universe. (laughs) Well, I'm not kidding. I mean, you rarely see something, um, a scope like this. It's just astonishing. So here's what you should do, then, if you're this guy. You should, um, if you can get people on board from First Nations around the world to do, like, a, you know, a a roundtable discussion about um, being stewards of life, see what they have to say, because they've actually done it. So, and when they laugh at you, and tell you, <laughs> no, you can only take care of where you are because the land speaks to you and informs you, um, then maybe it'll change your mind, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you would, I don't know, Jeremy. I, I don't think anybody will come away changed from that discussion, to be honest. Uh, seriously, two worldviews collide there. I mean, I just think it's hilarious that, like, on the one hand, we have people who are actively destroying the Earth because of dominance, you know, insert reason here. And then we've got people who actively want to, uh, I guess, not even save, but go what? Give up and be saviors somewhere else, everywhere else, because dominance. And guess where this ends? Dominance. Yes. So it begins and ends with dominance, and it's not about anything else. And so I would suggest to this author that he look at his impulse for dominance, (laughs) no matter how, no matter what rosy a lens that comes through, you know, it's still, that's the issue. And that's, that's you. That's, you know, you can't do anything about society, but you can look at you. Um, But instead, no, we're going to write books and we're going to swear. And then, you know, He'll be on, I'm sure, making the rounds on talk shows and whatnot, and people are going to take his ideas seriously and and all of that. And it's like everything we do, including the stuff we think is the good stuff, is a diversion from just sitting still and looking at us. The end. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I'm not sure he will. Um, uh, so, well, what are your thoughts? And I, I want, you know, I we have sort of a limited time here, although I guess if this Zoom call hangs up, start another one. But um, I wanted to ask you this. So, you know, you were uh, a professor at a university and you were working on real research and all that. Um, Is there more of this type of sort of um, actual from the intelligentsia, academic, scientific world, in parentheses, S, I guess, um, more of this sort of Frankenstein thinking happening now or has it always been this way? 
I think to some degree it's always been this way. Uh, we're, we're, you know, on a quest. Um, this one is just more extreme than the typical. Uh, he does talk to some other scientists who propose to do some modifications here on Earth. I can't remember, have we talked about gene drives before? Um, I don't know if we, we probably talked about it on this show at some point. Yeah, uh, so that, that kind of work. And uh, there's a lot of questions about that, whether, whether we have the wisdom to modify uh, ecosystems genetically to suit uh, our needs of the moment. Uh, no, wisdom think, would not let you do that. Wisdom would not tell you to do that. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but, but, but like that's incontrovertibly the case. There is no wisdom in doing that. And it's not even possible. <laughs> be, because, well, I should say it's possible, but uh, you don't know how it will turn out at all. And that kind of wrecks the duty thing, you know, because we're saying, well, the end here, we're going for this end. And if there's a good part to that, it justifies uh, what's going to be done. And, and you don't know what the end will be, uh, no matter how much you think you do. Uh, you know, it's just not feasible. Well, but also, didn't we just see with COVID that the second we're out of the picture, uh, things start to go back to normal? You know, like animals seem to appreciate it when we're out of the way. And so <laughs> yeah. does the air pollution and all of that. So you don't need to genetically modify anything. We need to actually go away or balance ourselves out or whatever it is. Yeah. We're the problem. We're not the saviors. And, and there you go. And so, you know, with what's being proposed are technological fixes to other technologically induced problems. And think that's not in the long term going to succeed. That's just my point of view. But this sort of rationale can be very powerful. And um, especially if you're the one who's feeling like they've got their finger on the trigger and is, is itching to pull it. You know? uh, uh, conflict of interest, however you want to put it, uh, reigns supreme here. But, uh, you know, the mission is one that we are, or collectively we, uh, have decided ourselves. And uh, there's never been enough input into this. And I, I don't think that there ever will be. But it's, it's just really rare to see a scientist come out and uh, just lay it on the line like this and just say, okay, here's, here's the vision for the future. This is what we should do. And, uh, I don't believe that it will work. I believe it has significant gaps, uh, one of which is that you forgot that the average way of life on this planet is a parasite. And most of the biodiversity in organisms we would call parasites. We've made no plans for them. But the other thing is, that's kind of interesting is, thinking about manifest destiny again, if we go out and we find a planet and there's something on it, what do we do? Do we stop? Right. Or do we yeah, plow no, we, it? We explain to them the duty that we have Yes, as as scientific zealots to <laughs> to, to bring help life them. to them to help yes. them to genetically to help modify them. them. Yeah, let us help you. <laughs> uh, I I'm just sitting there thinking like, man, you're you're the dude on the rocket ship and you're pulling up and you've made all these preparations and you've flown for a thousand generations, gone through hell, and then, damn it, there's somebody on the planet. Now what? But do they not see that, again, this is the same mind that is brought to us by the, the Bible? No, I mean, they don't it's see all that. the same stuff. It's just that they've gotten rid of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's worse. Uh, yeah. So sorry. It's the Bible without the moral code. Is what there it is. you go. Well, no, 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 no. There, there's Jeremy. Now, come on. There's a moral code here. It's called duty. Okay. Right. So uh, seriously. Uh, well, that's, but that's that's what the Inquisition was about. <laughs> no, that purity right. and purity. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just interesting that. That you can poke holes in this and, and see that it's going to be um, virtually impossible in so many ways today. And, and so the great savior here is that, yeah, but I'm talking hundreds of years into the future. And, you know, and so, okay, you have to allow that. Then you come back to the sort of like, do we really want to do this? Is this really wise? I, I would say, you know, is it even fair to the other organisms? You know, who will live? Who will die? We'll decide. That's kind of creepy. Well, I mean, that sounds about where we are right now, actually. Who will live and who will die? We decide. You know what? Every time you plow a field, uh, we're, we're making those decisions. And um, yeah. we're pretty good at expropriating whatever it is we wish uh, for human use and not so good about thinking about how the planet itself is going to uh, bear from that. Yeah, so now we got this is bigger, better, and further than we've done this before. That's the plan. So now, what is the other the other issue here? There was uh, the eugenics dating thing. Oh, it's just something. Tell that, me, please tell me it's as bad as I think it is. It, well, I think they would object to the term eugenic dating. Okay, but it, it turns I don't out why? <laughs> yeah, because there's no no bad connotations there. Uh, it, it turns out that one of the things that you can do nowadays with genetic profiles is that you could find someone who's a match uh, and then figure out before you had children uh, whether or not they would be afflicted with certain diseases. Now, some of these things have kind of been done on an informal basis, but uh, there was a, um, actually they have a website. I don't know if it's still active or not, but the, uh, the program's called Digidate, which uh, digit with an aid at the end of it. And it's basically a genetic match service. In, in its cruelest sort of description, you could call it uh, genetic profiling eugenics, that you're, you're picking your mate based on certain, I guess, attributes. Uh, in this particular instance, it's really to avoid um, passing on uh, diseases to the unborn child. And uh, I guess we could say that's, that's a you know, laudable goal. But uh, you can imagine how it wouldn't take very long for this to end up uh, in some other kind of uh, manifestation. I can uh, imagine how many people actually care about that versus care about blonde haired, blue eyes, whatever, whatever. There you go. Without making any assumptions, you know, I mean, I just think that, uh, yeah, uh, the, the idea of uh, not having a child with cystic fibrosis, all those things, uh, those are great. Uh, we will never eliminate the genes that way, by the way, but um, your chances of uh, conceiving a child uh, with those particular things that we can test for, uh, most of them being uh, single allele uh, mutations, uh, those can be minimized. There, there's no question about that. And so that's where the, the, the idea of Digidate as a societal good came in. Now, I don't know if they're still working on that. I don't know if it's still viable, but it is in the book, and it was the first I had heard of it. And uh, I was kind of uh, shocked, actually. But anyway. 
I thought that's where all this stuff was going in the first place was to be able to root out um, mentally challenged fetuses, you know, mental illnesses and all that sort of stuff to decide whether you wanted to. Well, I mean, I guess now there's no abortion. Right. But I thought before (laughs) it was like, oh, you can you can see whether you want to actually bring this uh, fetal tissue to term or whatever. Am I wrong about that? No, no, we could we could do amniocentesis and other tests. That that is or was at least a possibility. This is meant to avoid the uh, the issue of aborting. That you you prevent basically conception. You choose choose your mate uh, based on their genetic profile. But if you're the type of person who chooses a mate based on genetic profile and uses that type of robotic corporate language should you be having kids in the first what, are you, what are you saying jeremy i'm saying maybe your genes shouldn't be passed on maybe that's, that's a strong strong language sir uh, but yeah i have to i have to wonder i mean this is the thing that when, when you read the book you'll have a lot of these moments where the first thing you say is no what and, and then you start to say, but what? And then you catch yourself actually laughing. Uh, but it's serious. It's serious. Uh, I, and I don't know what to tell you. So uh, really bar is, scenes are going to change, man, a lot. It, 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 there is like some sort of magical component here to society where like with the mere whiff of a suggestion by powers that be, like we all do seem to change just according to their abracadabra words. For instance, at the beginning of the century when we were told this was going to be the information age, and suddenly, you know, not just is information important and, you know, online lives and all that, but we're talking like robots. We're talking like a terms and conditions, you know, click. Uh, We say words like social media in everyday language. We say things like click that like button, ring that bell, you know, sing for your supper, like and subscribe about like what should be artistic content. And it just seems like like just more and more choosing a mate based on their genetic profile. I mean, do we want to be these like what what about that language is appealing to us and and doesn't dehumanize us, Tyler? I mean, it is dehumanizing, right? And yet we it want is. this dehumanized thing to go on as the ultra human that saves everybody. See, it's better. Right? <laughs> there we go. There you have it, the bright, shining future. That's, that's what's being held forth. And to some degree, I think, you know, uh, alleviating human suffering uh, would be a laudable goal. And uh, then the question of duty comes in there. But it, it is interesting to read the book. And when you come out, one of the, the rationalizations for genetic engineering uh, is to reduce the suffering of our animal friends as a laudable goal. And so if we can do that, wouldn't that be good? I guess, yeah, then, then they'll be happy until we take them and slaughter them and eat them. Yeah, well, you could do that right now by not um, destroying the rainforest. Yes. That's why, I mean, that's just one way. There, there <laughs> actually, yes, there actually are a few alternatives, yes. But it is interesting how this duty thing I mean, it, it's a great sort of, I guess, 
operating principle because it's so malleable in so many ways. And, and if you work at it the right way, you can justify everything from nuclear war all the way to making uh, better feedstock animals. And it's all to their benefit, not just us. Well, what about you, you personally, as, as, you, uh, as you get on in your years? I know you're only like 25 at the moment, but... Uh, do you, yeah, dog years, yeah. Is there, I mean, you know, I, I almost did this whole season on death because I've been feeling antsy uh, about it, let's just say. Um, is there anything in you that is like, yeah, I want to go on forever, or I... I th or even, well, personally, you, personally, immortality, or even this whole human thing, as we've described it, uh, has to go on. What are your feelings about that? I don't feel any urgency that, that we have to go on as a species or uh, past the, the, basically the lifetime imposed by our planet, the sun, and eventually the universe. At some point, what we're doing is staving off the inevitable and perhaps at a cost. The counter argument to that is we know life is here. We know that it seems to be relatively rare. We're trying to figure that out, by the way. Uh, and so we have a duty to preserve. And, uh, and it's our role in the universe. I don't know that I would presume to assume that particular sort of power to say this is our role. Uh, and I don't think that people are going to accept it. Now, also keep in mind that if there is immortality in this particular sense uh, beyond uh, keeping the species alive, uh, we're talking nobody here is going to get out alive. We're hundreds of years into the future. So that, that's also going to uh, probably really color how people react to that. Well, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's not going to take, but uh, I, I don't even think we have hundreds of years, frankly. But um, I don't think it's really even about that. I think it's, on the one hand, it's a procrastination. Let's just put this off forever, you know, so we don't have to deal with right now. Um, but I also think that it's, uh, again, I, I, well, I'll go to the, the idea that Kyokas um, and Ghost Horse put in my head that, you know, the Lakota, and I'm certain... Many others, if not all other First Nations, don't have a word for humanity or for human, and that they're inclusive. So if you tell them, you know, hey, we evolved from apes, and they tell you, well, we came from, you know, where the Pleiades or whatever, uh, they will include your creation story because, you know, why would you lie? I guess they're, they're, they just, you know, that's, <laughs> if that's your creation story, that's your creation story. But we don't do that for them. We don't extend that same. So this idea of like what humanity is, is already a prejudice. It's already, you've got to conform to my mind. And that is humanity. And everyone else is sort of subhuman or primitive or will pretend they don't exist and just talk about ancient people uh, and lump them in with that. Um, but no, there's actually a bunch of different minds on this planet if you want to talk about humanity. So which humanity gets to go on? Is yeah. it just the white guys in the lab coats who are afraid to die? Jeremy, what would scare an agnostic 
scientists more than the prospect of death and oblivion. And so I see, think you're seeing some of that. I, I don't know if Dr. Mason has uh, religious faith or not, uh, I'm presuming here, but uh, I think your point is well taken. And we're talking about planet Earth. Imagine what happens if we run into something truly alien. What kind of IQ test do we use to figure out if we're smart or not? We, you know, we have enough problems here culturally. The IQ test being a prime example of something that has its own sort of built-in bias. And so we exclude people on that basis at our own peril. We've happily done that for quite a while, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and I also think that just, you know, because you're coming from this partial tiny little mind that believes it's this great big mind, like a, any two-year-old, you're going to get some things wrong. And I think that the idea that we must sort of Noah's Ark our way into the universe and then ultimately um, be preserving life in the entire universe or, or whatever, you know, is our ultimate goal is missing the point. Nature, again, nature is already doing that, that life begets life. And so and these ecosystems are systems prior to human intelligence looking at them and going, oh, look, systems, that's weird. So nature knows how to set herself up <laughs> to promote herself and expand that way. So that's not what the human destiny is. If the, the quote-unquote human destiny is anything, it is to at least be our whole sense of self and then see what's beyond that as the thing that we need to expand with. Uh, so, I mean... I don't know. To me, that would be the point is like, just just remember, you set up a fake hierarchy and you put yourself on the top of it. That's all. And if you're still yeah. moving from that yeah. point, then there's a problem. Um, there's um, there's something interesting that, that he has in there towards that end is that uh, as, as we begin to um, head towards that planet pinnacle, be it mechanical or some kind of biological improvements, uh, you know, we're moving up. Run this this process of even getting better, which is kind of interesting. So we're already good enough to take over, but got a little perfection to do. Yeah, I know. I hear you. <laughs> Said Putin to so, Ukraine. Yeah. Well, here we go. Uh, you're. Um, I, I don't know. I think we're we're way. First of all, this is speculation. In fairness to to Dr. Mason, he's he's outlining what could be and trying to, to show uh, you know, that we start on solid ground. Uh, there are a lot of things that, that we can do now. And the question's about what we should do. I mean, should you, should you take your child and uh, um, have them engineered for super radiation resistance so we can zip them off to Mars? And what happens to them if we do? All these questions that swirl around. He, he's pretty good at, at showing some of the questions, by the way. It's not just this sort of, Oh, it's going to be super in every way. Uh, he, he does talk about downsides. And it's pretty clear you don't want to be on his intergenerational Noah's Ark. <laughs> that is not, not good. But somebody's going to get that assignment. Right. Wow. Someone's going, to be me. someone's going to go in Elon's space Tesla to go to Mars first, right? Elon Musk is a hiker compared to this guy. <laughs> okay. This guy, this is the difference, uh, you know, in terms of uh, far out and expansive thought 
Elon has been left in the dust. Oh, well, send your hate mail to Tyler at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry. Right. Read the book. Tell me. We, we've got. Uh, I, I, I probably won't. But uh, you people out there, peons, you know, lessers in the hierarchy, you can read the book. <laughs> That's that's the spirit, Jeremy. <laughs> We've got about a minute and thirty seconds here. Is there anything you want to um, disavow or uh, or add? Well, uh, disavow? No, no. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be volunteering for any of those missions. Uh, I'd have uh, a lot of questions about uh, if we can even get to Mars after I read this one. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not going to volunteer for that one. So uh, future may be glorious, but it's going to be tough getting there. Tyler Kochan says, I will be the first retiree to not volunteer for anything. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, oh, and it's Lord. true. <laughs> well, Tyler, thank you for closing off another rousing season of our Undoing Radio. Uh, much appreciated. Yeah, it was fun. So, um, yeah. I hope some of your listeners will read the book and uh, maybe let us know how it struck them. Yeah, read the book and, and let us know. I want a full report. 